So we'll read the whole of Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. Starting at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says God, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God, see, The sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom, then, will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes to the heavens, who created all these. He who brings out the starry hosts one by one, and calls forth each of them by name. 
Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Well, thanks, Leah, and good morning again, everyone. I should just point out on your seats, uh, I've put together a daily reading guide, which will take you through uh, until Christmas, actually, just with a short section of Isaiah to read each day and a couple of questions, uh, Monday to Friday. So they are free to take, and uh, if you're like me, you need to keep mixing things up to kind of get that daily diet of God's Word into your life. I hope they're a real blessing to you, and yeah, I'd encourage everyone to take up the challenge to uh, just have a short reading of Isaiah each day and to be thinking about it and I think it'll bring out a lot more of the richness of Isaiah uh, including our Sunday uh, times together so I commend uh, those booklets to you. Well if you are new to us here today at Trinity or in recent weeks one thing that I hope you come to appreciate about us is that we're pretty captivated by the grace of God shown to us in Jesus. So if you're checking out Jesus for the first time or thinking about church and Jesus for the first time in a while, followers of Jesus use the word grace to describe the giving of an undeserved gift, getting something that we haven't earned. And the other term that kind of goes hand in hand with it, in the Christian world at least, is the term mercy, where mercy involves not getting something bad, a punishment, say, that you have deserved. So when a Christian says they're captivated by the grace and mercy of God, it's because they understand and deeply love the fact that whilst uh, they deserve God's wrath against their sin, through Jesus' work on the cross, taking the penalty of sin upon his shoulders, we bear it no more. We've been shown mercy. We don't get something bad that we deserve. And more than that, by God's grace, we get something really great a place in God's family now and into eternity, a free and loving relationship with God again and his people, freedom from the fear of death and much and a whole lot more that is entirely undeserved. If you put that together in a nutshell, that's the gospel, as Christians call it, that we're called to share with our world, that the grace and mercy of God is available to all through Jesus. So for brevity's sake, and so I don't sound like I've got a theological stutter, I'll refer to that all as the grace of God, as many do. So if you're someone new to Trinity Church Kernelite Gardens, we are a people pretty captivated by the grace of God. Our senior network pastor, Paul Harrington, said in a recent sermon that it's our main goal as a Trinity network to help people grasp and be bowled over by the grace of God and never really recover from it. I walked into a Trinity church in 1999 as a fairly new Christian, 
And for 24 years now, I've benefited richly from this ministry of God's grace. I'm passionate about it. I consider myself a pretty good student of God's grace. Yet earlier this year in my daily devotional book uh, by a guy called Paul Tripp, a question was posed about God's grace that really stumped me for a little while. And this was the question. You can pop it up on screen, Jack. That'd be great. This was uh, what Tripp uh, posed. He said, if someone were to ask you, what is the ultimate final goal of God's grace? What is it? What would you answer? If someone were to ask you what the ultimate final goal of God's grace is, what would you answer? Now, Tripp listed off a beautiful and compelling list of some of the many things God's grace can accomplish in our lives. God's grace, for example, can make us more thankful and better stewards of what we've been given. Uh, God's grace can assist us to communicate in a way that's less selfish and more loving towards others. God's grace can make us better citizens and neighbours. God's grace can cause us to be more responsible with the use of our bodies and more sexually pure. God's grace can make us less anxious and more courageous. God's grace can pilot us through disappointment and give us joy even when we're suffering. And the list continued for some time. Yet Tripp concluded, uh, the next uh, slide on screen, thanks Jack, would be good. He said, all of these things are the beautiful harvest of grace. All of these uh, things which which we should be eternally thankful for. But none of these good gifts is the ultimate goal. Of God's grace. We're starting today a nine week series in the second half of the book of Isaiah from chapters 40 to 66. We looked at chapters 1 to 39 last year and it's on our website. But it's this next section of Isaiah that I think gives us one of the clearest, kind of standing on the mountaintop range, kind of big picture views of the grace of God and its ultimate purpose. And more than that, it shows us how this grace was planned and foretold, uh, the deepest um, issues that God's grace addresses. Uh, It actually tells us how this was to be achieved through the person we now know as Jesus and how we're called to live in response to that grace today. So as we get going, I hope you're excited. It'd be great to have Isaiah 40 open in front of you or on your devices. And it's on page 718 of the Bibles on the Seats. And we'll try and draw out of it as we make a start in this nine-week series what the ultimate goal of God's grace is in our lives together. As you turn there, let me give you a quick question, uh, sorry, a quick orientation on where we are in Isaiah Uh, As a church here, we've recently finished a series in the book of 1 Kings, and Isaiah's ministry picks up a little further on in the downward spiral from the high point of uh, Solomon's kingship, as the nation is actually heading towards exile in Babylon. Yet in the previous chapter of Isaiah, and uh, the ones before it, chapters 36 to 39, up until this point, the main foe for Israel has been Assyria. Uh, God hears King Hezekiah's prayer and the angel of the Lord strikes down 185,000 
Assyrian soldiers who it had encircled and laid siege to Jerusalem. Victory is granted by God miraculously. Yet as we left Hezekiah, after his illness and recovery, Babylon now enter the scene and send envoys to him. So Isaiah questions the king about what's transpired and then prophesies that days are coming yet far off that the wealth and the people of God will be carried off into exile in Babylon. So closing this section, you know, just finished on the extraordinary power of God to save, uh, as illustrated by the Assyrian defeat, we kind of then kind of move into the sour note of pending doom, uh, leaving us with the question, uh, will this kind of cycle ever end? When I became a Christian, I picked up the Bible and just started reading it, Genesis chapter 1. By the time I got to the New Testament, I thought, will this cycle never end of God blessing his people, people forgetting God's blessing, turning away from him, worshipping everything else, calamity ensues, people cry out to God, God's kind and gracious, he blesses them again, and the cycle just keeps going. That was my take as someone who'd never really read the Bible in depth of the entire Old Testament on my first read-through. And I think we're in that point in Isaiah where, as a reader, we're asking this question, will this cycle never end? Uh, So as we turn to chapter 40 now, we skip... uh, Actually, forward, there's a bit of a time shift in Isaiah... Uh, We skip forward from this kind of damning prophecy during Hezekiah's reign to an unspecified time where God says, I'm going to address this problem beneath all other problems. Our heart's kind of gravitational pull to worship everything else but him. So for the first generation who heard Isaiah's prophecies, it was preparing them for the coming exile in Babylon so that they might understand this devastating turn of events aright. For the generation shortly after who read it in exile, it sought to bring them comfort and hope that God had not forgotten them. And as we shall see over the next nine weeks, it speaks powerfully about the ultimate purpose of God's grace both then and to every generation since. We will apply this uh, to us today, yet it's really important to understand something like Isaiah from the perspective that the first Uh, hearers of it had, that we might understand it in context first, so uh, that we can then rightly apply it to us today. So as we begin in chapter 40, verse 1, imagine, just try and take yourself there for the the visual people or uh, um, those with good imaginations, imagine reading this for the first time as someone knowing that Babylon is coming to destroy the nation and carry us off into exile, or perhaps as the generation after living in Babylon, hearing the stories of your elders about life, what life was like back in Jerusalem at better times before the dark years came, wondering if God had forgotten or forsaken you. So try and take yourself there in your heart and then hear these words, Isaiah 40, chapter 1, verse 1. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. 
Isaiah is saying that this time of exile is coming to an end. God's disciplining punishment will be complete and he'll lead his people home. Isaiah's words would have been like a new day, dawning, bright, light, a beautiful day like today, bringing warmth to a cold and demoralized community in Babylon. There's a beautiful picture painted in verses 3 and 4 of a a desert highway being made straight and level in, in preparation of God himself coming to reveal his glory that all people will see together, verse 5. And as much as human life is frail and the generations pass like flowers in the field, verse 6, the word of our God, verse 8, which reveals his character and his promises, this word endures forever. Heralds are to stand on a high mountain in the city squares and with a loud voice announce his arrival. Here is your God, verse 9. So read with me from verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. This is God not simply sending blessings from afar. Isaiah speaks of a time where God comes in person to bring these blessings himself. So can you imagine the comfort these words would have brought to the fearful and demoralized people of God? And the images used to show God's character and the way he'll lead his people in verse 11 just kind of put another layer on the cake of this comfort. Verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. These first 11 verses act as an introduction to this magnificent theme of Isaiah that swells into a fully formed picture of a time of universal salvation by the time we reach the end of chapter 55. Those who first came back after exile under King Cyrus' decree would have begun to have seen God keeping this promise. Yet as Christians, we live in a time where we look back and see Jesus himself and the New Testament authors showing us that Isaiah's words were ultimately fulfilled as Jesus came. As John the Baptist appears centuries later, identified for us as that very voice of one calling in the wilderness, calling people back to God in repentance, making a way straight for the Lord who comes himself Jesus, fully man, fully God, to fulfill the words of Isaiah. And we'll see in coming weeks, bringing God's grace with him. Yet from this kind of lofty vision, Isaiah takes an unexpected turn. So often with the prophets, even when they had kind of lofty and beautiful messages to share from God, like those in these first 11 verses the people are less than convinced about what they hear and hearts responded with doubts and fears. Now, I don't think we should look back with a kind of spiritual snobbery on those first generations who heard Isaiah's words, thinking that if we were there, we would have been these wonderful models of faith and obedience. Ask yourself, if you were there in Babylon, You'd seen your whole nation destroyed, many killed, and you'd been carried off into exile 
by a far bigger and more powerful empire who openly mocked your trusting God and desire to follow his ways, I think that should give us pause for thought if we're sort of thinking back, thinking we would have had such a strong and robust faith at that point, hearts that just naturally trusted in God and his promises. Would you live with such a strong resolve that your belief worked itself out in a life full of daily trusting uh, God obediently and his word, despite the mocking ridicule of those who lived around you with power, riches, and the easy confidence of the intellectual elite? In Isaiah's day, he had some faith-building work to do in the hearts of God's people to firm up their trust in the Lord their God so that they had the confidence to live lives of resolve, obeying the word of the Lord and walking in his ways despite opposition. I was watching a movie a few months back that got me thinking about the challenges of living in days as dark as Isaiah's first hearers. Uh, My son Jack wanted to watch the war movie Dunkirk It's a great movie, and I said, yes. But I said, I want you to watch The Darkest Hour with me first, another great movie about that exact moment in history. The Darkest Hour focuses on Winston Churchill during the key first uh, few weeks as British Prime Minister during World War II. The Nazis were at the peak of their power. Western Europe is falling, and the Nazis have the momentum now. And the British Army's 300,000 men are trapped in Dunkirk on the west coast of France. With the Germans' air superiority, it looks as if all hope is lost and Churchill is being urged to bargain away their freedom to save them. There's some great uh, spring viewing, if we can call it spring there. If you haven't seen either of those two movies, Dunkirk is from the soldier's perspective, The Darkest Hour from the political perspective. Both great movies, in my opinion. But it transports you back into a time not long ago as desperate as those whose, um, as, as, as Isaiah's first hearers found themselves in. And one of the quotes from The Darkest Hour that stuck with me was the one where uh, someone asked Churchill about his parents. And in the movie, at least, Churchill responds. He says, my father was like God busy elsewhere, (laughs) displaying a real contempt for the things of God. When circumstances are their darkest and the world seems out of control, it is perhaps the easiest to mock God and those who trust in him. I kind of feel for very different reasons. We're living in a moment where the world feels more out of control than usual. One in a hundred year floods, it seems, every other year. War has returned to Western Europe. Food shortages, inflation, talk of uh, global recession, cost of living concerns. And global poverty, which kind of recedes from the public's eye as we become more worried about ourselves, rages on, stripping people of their humanity. Day by day, we hear stories, some quite close to home, really sad tales of people losing battles with mental health. And amidst it, we're living through a time where in the public sphere, if anyone takes a stand for God in the media, 
in the workplace, on the sporting field, at school, they are summarily executed on social media, as we've seen recently in the Essendon saga. Where if you share, however lovingly, that there's a creator God behind our world, if you articulate a different view on sexuality and gender, however compassionately and humbly you might say it, if out of love you sacrifice your social standing with many by sharing that there is only one mediator between God and man and only one path to God through Christ alone, well, where is your God? Busy elsewhere is the mocking tone of our age. Isaiah lived in such times and had faith-building work to do and that faith-building work is just as timely amongst God's people today. After painting such a beautiful picture of God coming to his people down a highway made straight, heralded from the mountaintops and the city streets bringing comfort, bringing blessing, personally entering our world with power and might, to save and the gentleness of lovingly leading his flock, holding them close to his heart. Isaiah then moves to answer the fearful and doubting questions coming from the hearts of the people of God. As David Jackman puts so well in his excellent little book, Teaching Isaiah, which I uh, commend to you along with the daily reading guides, we see that Isaiah knows his audience's hearts well enough that they're asking, amongst this circumstance, does God really have the power to do what he's promised? That's verses 12 to 26. And further, does he really have the will to do it? In verses 27 to 31. So God's immense power and wisdom is then first declared by Isaiah. Pick it up with me from verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Isaiah doesn't just gently mock. He ridicules those who worship anything less than the one true God. Those who fear man. Those who are impressed by the power of the world's great nations. In verses 15 to 24, Isaiah says essentially, and you heard it, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. The surrounding nations that God's, that God's people fear, well, God says they're kindling for his fire. The things that they worship are useless. God stands enthroned above our world. Princes and rulers will come to nothing and fade. They will die. They will blow away like chaff. And contrasted to that, verse 25 says, To whom will you compare me, says God? Or who is my equal? says the Holy One. Now the Babylonians were well known for worshipping the stars and as the people of God languished in exile, mocked 
and dispirited, God says through his prophet, verse 26, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these things? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Behind our world and all the things that people love and worship and give their, the best of their energy and time to, behind the majesty and splendor of the universe is the one who made it, says God through his prophet. Well, if he's so powerful then, is he just busy elsewhere and not have the will to help us? Has he forgotten us is the question the people of God have. Uh, that Isaiah is answering, verse 27, to which his reply is, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. God is... Powerful beyond measure is Isaiah's words. And he does care for us immensely is the word Isaiah brings to build the faith of his people. This chapter really is kind of an overture to where we're going in the rest of Isaiah. So I wanted you to understand very clearly today that faith building is Isaiah's task for the dispirited people in his time through the exile and return, and faith building it is for us who can know with great confidence, historically, archaeologically, that Isaiah predicts in advance with astounding accuracy the arrival of the grace and mercy of God as he comes in the flesh as our Lord Jesus Christ. And with extraordinary detail, declares in advance how these blessings will come as Jesus heads to the cross, bearing our griefs, carrying our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions. What is the ultimate goal of God's grace? What is the ultimate purpose for which God declares and then does all of this? through sending Jesus to the cross? Well, it's to reorient our worship away from the created things in our world, our, uh, our intellect, our relationships, our experiences, and direct that worship back to the creator God who made and created them all. As Isaiah reminds us, it's to strip away our fear of man, our sense that the world's great nations are the most powerful things that make us feel powerless. It's to help us realise that in God's hands, the things our world fears are nothing. 
so that we might worship and enjoy the God who loves us and is far more powerful and entirely for all those who place their hope in him. As Tripp concluded in my daily reading, when answering his own question, what's the ultimate purpose of God's grace? Let's pop it up on screen. Thanks, Jack. That'd be great. Tripp says, here is the bottom line. Sin kidnapped our worship and grace works to restore it to its rightful owner, God. It is only when God is in his rightful place in our hearts that everything else is in its appropriate place in our lives and only powerful grace can accomplish this. In the end, it is only those who hope in the Lord who will renew their strength, who will endure beyond this life to experience the blessing of being with our all-powerful God for all eternity, who will not grow weary, who will walk and not be faint. So do take the daily reading guides and get stuck into Isaiah because Isaiah has much faith-building work to do among us today so that we might rightly trust, love, obey and worship the one true God. That Trinity Church Colonel Light Gardens may be increasingly captivated by the grace of God. Let me close today in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word to us and we pray that over the coming weeks and months uh, that for so many of us that we might either learn for the first time or, or be deeply refreshed in seeing uh, just how uh, your whole story of salvation is first announced and declared uh, and comes to bear in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ as he walked this earth and died upon the cross for our sins and rose uh, to new life uh, to oversee the church as we declare uh, that the grace and mercy of God are available to all who put their hope in you today. Uh, please, firstly, in our hearts, help us to um, just work through the ways where uh, our, our hope uh, and our worship have been turned away from you to the things that you so lovingly have given us. Please help reorient our worship back uh, to you, uh, just with a deeper sense of wholeheartedness, that we might enjoy and give thanks to you uh, for the many good things we enjoy for your hand, uh, but also that we might trust you uh, when life, uh, whether it's uh, global events uh, or um, uh, just uh, different things happening in life as we've already heard uh, today so powerfully attested to, uh, that we might trust you wholeheartedly. Uh, and worship you uh, in the good times and in the challenging until we see you face to face. Uh, we thank you and entrust ourselves to your grace to keep us safe from this day to that one. And for all those who uh, are thinking through who you are, please help us as a church, through, as we meet on Sundays, through uh, things like our coming life series to uh, explain and to answer questions and to help people wrestle with just how beautiful your grace shown to us through Jesus is. It's in his uh, precious and very powerful name we pray. Amen.